tonight. I'm glad to see Mark Roberts come all the way down here from Crossville, Tennessee. I've known Mark for a lot of years. We've watched each other's children grow up and get married and, and move on and do things in life. And uh, I love Mark and his family and appreciate him greatly. But it would be a long ride back. It'd be a long ride back, no doubt about it. If you would open your Bibles to Proverbs 4. Proverbs 4. I want us to notice verses 14 through 19. The wise man encouraged, Enter not into the path of the wicked, and go not in the way of the evil men. Avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, and pass away. For they sleep not, except they have done mischief. And their sleep is taken away, unless they cause some to fail. For they eat the bread of wickedness, and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. The way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. Now we talked this morning about how the choices of life often will cause one to find himself or herself in the valleys of life. But we also talked about making another choice once we find ourselves in those valleys, deciding to get out of the valley, to go to the mountaintop to to correct our paths and get where we need to be. Now the only way for a choice to become reality is through determination. We have to be determined in our choices. Determination will help decide destination. And that's the title of the sermon tonight. Determination will help decide destination. Are you familiar with a man by the name of Glenn Cunningham? Have you ever heard that name? His story really is astounding. When he was eight years old, he, was, uh, he went to school in a, in a country schoolhouse, and it was his job to get there early every morning. And he would go in and he would start the pot-bellied stove with the coal, and he would warm the room, and he would prepare it for that day for the teacher and his classmates. And he would use kerosene to get that fire started. That's just kind of how you started coal fires. Well, one morning, one cold morning, someone had accidentally replaced the kerosene with gasoline. And he went in, he poured that on the coal, and when he lit that fire, there was an explosion, and the schoolhouse was engulfed in flame. So when the teacher and the school children showed up, they saw the flame, they were terrified upon understanding that Glenn Cunningham was still in that building. So they rushed in, they grabbed the little boy out, he was more dead than he was alive, he had terrible burns on the lower half of his body, and so they, they took him to a nearby county hospital. And while he was at that hospital, and from his bed, the badly burned young boy, eight years old, heard the doctor speaking to his mother. And the doctor said, we do not have much hope for Glenn to, to survive, he surely will die, and really, he told his mother, that's going to be best for the boy if he does die, for the terrible fire it has devastated the lower half of his body. But Glenn didn't want to die. He was brave, and he was determined to live. So he made up his mind that he would survive, and somehow, to the amazement of the doctor, he did survive. And he lived. Yet when the mortal danger was passed, again laying on that bed in his weakened state, surviving but not yet thriving, he heard the doctor once again 
talking to his mother. And they were speaking quietly, and, and he told her, he said, Your son will never walk again. He has so much damage to the flesh of his lower body that, that he's doomed to a lifetime of being a cripple, and he would have been better off if he had just died. Well, his mother refused, though, to allow this doctor to amputate her son's legs. So once more, again, this brave little boy made up his mind. He was determined that he would not be a cripple for the rest of his life. He was determined that he would walk again. But unfortunately for Glenn, he had no use of his legs or from the waist down. He had no motor ability. His thin legs just kind of dangled there. He didn't have much use for them. He couldn't move them. And they were all but lifeless. Well, ultimately, Glenn was released from the hospital. He went home. And every day after that, his mother and his father, they would massage his little legs and they were trying to bring life back into them. But there was no feeling, there was no control, there's really no life in his legs. He was just there. Yet his determination to walk was just as strong as it ever had been. So when he wasn't in bed, Glenn was confined to a wheelchair. And on occasion, his mother would take his wheelchair and push him out into the yard so he could get some fresh air and be out in the sunlight. But on one day when she did this, he didn't just sit there. He decided he wasn't going to sit there any longer. So what he did, he threw himself out of the chair. And he began to drag with his arms across the yard, his lifeless legs being carried behind him, and he crawled over to the fence. And with a lot of effort, he pulled himself up onto that fence and he held on to to each uh, panel of the fence until he could stand there hanging on. And he began to drag himself along that fence. And you know what? He did that every day until even there was a smooth pathway across the yard where where Glenn Cunningham drug himself as an eight-year-old boy because he was determined that he was going to walk again. Ultimately, through his daily massages, Glenn's iron persistence, his resolute determination, he did develop first the ability to stand. Then he was able to walk with some help. And then he was able to walk on his own, and then the impossible happened. Glenn Cunningham began to run. And he ran everywhere. He ran for the sheer joy of running and the ability he had to run. People in town would see him running to who knows where and they would look at him and they would just smile, understanding what his history was. In fact, later in college, Glenn made the track team. And he became known in Kansas as the Kansas Flyer. And then in 1934, New York City's famed Madison Square Garden, young Glenn Cunningham, who was not expected to survive, who surely would never walk again, who could never hope to run, that determined young man, Dr. Glenn Cunningham, ran the mile in four minutes and eight seconds, the fastest time up to that point. Now a year later, he shaved off another second from his record Again, to run the fastest mile up to that point in history. Later, he was inducted into the Kansas Sports Hall of Fame. 
1974. And all because he had a determination to reach his goal. And we have to keep in mind, determination alone will not allow us to reach our goal, and it may not take us where we need to be. For instance, if I want to go to California and I get on Interstate 40 and I head east, I can be determined as I want to be to get to California, but I'm not going to make it. I'm going to run into some water out in North Carolina somewhere, so I have to first be on the right road, right? And then my determination can help me reach my destination. Now, there are at least three roads in this life I want to talk about for just a moment on which we may choose to walk. Only one of these three will lead us where we want to be no matter what our determination is. But we still have to be determined. But we will travel likely upon one of these three roads at some point in our life depending on what we are determined to be. Now, the first road I want to talk about tonight, and this is our first point, is the road of distraction. Do you know that Glenn Cunningham was not distracted, was he? Can you imagine an eight-year-old boy not being distracted, hearing the doctor talk to his mother? The boy surely will die. He'd be better off if he did die. Well, he'll be a cripple for the rest of his life. He'd been better off if he had died. We might as well amputate his legs. How do you not become distracted when you hear things like that in this life? Distraction is a terrible thing. John warned us about distraction. Notice what he said in 1 John 2, 15. He said, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Many people in the world have become distracted and they ignore Jesus. They're concerned with so many things in this life that really, in the big scheme of things, when we look at it, when life is over, it doesn't matter anyway. I don't know how many times I heard my dad say, in a hundred years, what difference does it make anyway when talking about something in this life? Something I might have been worried about as a young child, a young man growing up, and I would, I would be talking to him about it, and he'd say, look, I think you're, you're making a little more out of this than you ought to. He said, what difference is it going to make in a hundred years anyway? Those previously addressed by John in 1 John, the children, the fathers, the young men, they had triumphed in their prospective roles, but they still needed encouragement. They had done well up to that point, and they were doing well, but they still lived in the world. And so they still needed to have encouragement to continue doing what they were doing. And they needed to be conscious of the temptations that were around them. And that's why John wrote the letter. And so because of those great temptations and the warnings that they needed to hear, they needed an additional warning. Now John was not talking about the material universe, the world. When he talked about the world, he warned of the temptations which exist in the world. It's, there's nothing wrong with living in this world. God gave this world to us to enjoy. There, at the time that John was writing his letter, he was fighting against the Gnostics, and they said anything physical was evil. They said Jesus could not inhabit a physical body or God could not inhabit a physical body so Jesus was not the Son of God. And so he battled against that and battled against that. There's nothing sinful about the world in and of itself. It's the things that we've caused to come about in this world that go against God's teachings. So in other words, they were not to embrace the things of this world. 
they were to embrace God. Now an example of this road of distraction on which some may travel, we see an example of that when we read about those two disciples following the crucifixion of Jesus. There were two men and they were traveling to a city or a town called Emmaus. Let's notice Luke 24, beginning with verse 13. Luke 24, beginning with verse 13, And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about three score furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened, talking about the crucifixion. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus Himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were holding that they should not know Him. They couldn't see the forest because the trees were in the way. They were so determined that to be distracted by the physical things in this world, the physical death of Christ, the things that had happened surrounding Him, they missed the spiritual blessings. All the time prior to His crucifixion, do you remember what Jesus would tell the disciples? I'm going to give my life. I'm going to be murdered. I'm going to be taken before the ruler's of Rome and of the Jewish rulers, and I'm going to give my life, and I'm giving my life so that you might live. And they were so caught up in the idea of Jesus not giving His life because of their great love for Him, they had blinded themselves and they became distracted. They never really grabbed hold of the notion of a spiritual kingdom until the Holy Spirit opened their eyes. A similar thing happened to the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness. They became so distracted with the absence of Moses, they left God. Do you recall when he went up on the mountaintop and he was gone for 40 days and they began thinking, well, what about this man Moses? Where's he at? He got us all the way out here and he left us. They became so distracted, Exodus 32, that they turned to idol worship. They began to worship a golden calf and they began to participate in all types of immorality surrounding that pagan worship. They brought that from Egypt with them. And they allowed that to infiltrate their minds and their hearts. But you know, one doesn't have to be a sinner or doesn't have to choose to leave God to become distracted. That can happen to the most faithful. Do you recall Martha becoming distracted during her preparation of a meal for the Lord? Oh, what an honorable thing. Would it not be wonderful if any of us were blessed with the opportunity to have our Lord come into our homes and to prepare a meal for Him? Well, I don't blame Martha. You want to provide the best meal possible. You want to get out the good recipe box. You know, you want to get out the the recipes that are very expensive that you only only do on special occasion because it's very time-consuming or it's very... Uh, expensive to buy the ingredients. Boy, that's the box we're reaching for, isn't it? So I understand Martha. She wanted to provide for this man in the only way she figured she could provide for him. But she was distracted. We see that account, Luke 10, verse 40. He said, Martha, Martha, you're cumbered about. You're worried. You're becoming distracted in essence. But now her sister Mary, and you recall what happened. She, Martha went to Jesus and said, Jesus, my sister, do you not care that she's left me to do all this work? And that's when he said, Martha, Martha, 
See, Mary chose that which was needful. She wasn't distracted. In whatever sense of understanding that she had at the time, she knew that her time with Jesus was limited, right? She wasn't going to fool around with cooking a meal when she could sit at His feet and listen to Him and be taught by Him. She wasn't going to be distracted, but Martha was distracted. Mary chose that which is good. But what was it that, <clears throat> that John warned against this distraction? Well, the same reasons that, that Solomon talked about it in Proverbs 4. Great wickedness in the world. He warned against the wickedness. The wickedness of distraction, right? The reason John warned is because that's rampant. Now, he explained to us in general terms the ways in which we become distracted. 1 John 2, verse 16, our very next verse in John, 1 John. He said, for all that is in the world. Now, remember, verse 15, he said, don't love the world. Don't become distracted by the world. Why? Because all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. See, the things of the world do not have their origination in heaven. They do not have their origination in God. But they have their origination in the world. And if we allow ourselves to become distracted, we become a part of that, don't we? We get caught up with our jobs. We get caught up with our social circles. We get caught up with our reputation. We get caught up with our finances. We become distracted and instead of focusing on God, we begin to focus on the smaller things that are not nearly as important. Should we guard our reputations? Absolutely. Should we work hard at our jobs and try to be successful? Absolutely. Should we want to maintain good relationships with the people around us in our social circles? Absolutely we ought to want to do that. But we have to put it in, it in the proper perspective. What's more important? Becoming rich or being faithful to God? Becoming wealthy or being faithful to God? Just getting by or be, being faithful to God? Having the right friends in the right places or being faithful to God? Letting my reputation be known as someone who is an upstanding citizen? And we all ought to want that. But what's more important, that or my relationship with God? See, designated into three categories. The lust of the flesh, that's the lust after the flesh. He's not talking about the skin. He's talking about the darker parts of people who desire for their appetites to be filled in a way that is ungodly, not the ways in which God has set aside for those appetites to be filled. You see, the lust of the flesh exhibits themselves in the works of the flesh, Galatians 5.19. So we have to be aware of that. He talked about the lust, the lust of the eyes, desires that are awakened through our sight, seeing something. The pride of life, that's vanity, pride, arrogance, and a love for worldly honor. And so we can't love those things. We can't be a part of those things. Now, we have to live in the world. We just can't be like the world. You know, the first sin committed incorporated all three of those, right? We understand that. That's what Satan did. He employed that. The first couple was distracted. They were drawn away. Their path led to physical death and spiritual separation. And the same thing happened to Israel as a nation. During the time of Isaiah, he wrote, Isaiah 59, beginning with verse 1, he said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, 
neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. See, the prophet warned them of that wickedness because to be distracted is to leave God. And that's what Israel did, wasn't it? They did that for most of their history in and out of fellowship with God for most of their history, mostly, it seems to me, out. Another road upon which we may find ourselves walking is the road of alteration. We may walk distracted, but we might also alter. Now that road is full of those who are willful, those who are determined to do as they please and not as God pleases. Paul warned Timothy of such. He talked about people who would come in and they would be willful and they would alter God's message and they would teach the things that they wanted to teach. And he talked about those who were more than happy to follow. See, you can't have someone, one false teacher is not going to cause that much trouble unless he has an audience who will agree with him. Notice what he told Timothy, 2 Timothy 4 verse 3. He said, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust, they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. There comes a time when people, through distraction or through alteration, they decide they don't like sound doctrine. They don't want to hear the, the, the biblical truths on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. They do not want to hear the biblical truths on modesty. They do not want to hear the biblical truths on the ways in which we worship God. See, they become distracted and they begin to alter what God has commanded them. And they've got these itching ears that they want scratched, meaning they want to hear what they want to hear. And John said this, how do we keep that from happening? Well, notice what John said in 1 John 4 verse 1. He said, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Just because you have an ear that needs to be scratched doesn't mean you need to believe everything that you hear, right? We need to listen to God's Word, not alter that. That is a road upon which we must never walk. Paul dedicated his life to defending the faith against false apostles or anything or anyone else who would try to destroy God's church. 2 Corinthians 11, 13. When we read about Christ's life, when we read about His ministry, and we read about a time when many of the chief priests and, and leaders of the church, they believed on Jesus. They recognized what He said because, you know what? They saw it in Scripture. But they would not confess a belief in Him because they feared the Pharisees. They willfully ignored God. Now we see another example of this. Willfully ignoring God as Saul of Tarsus was on his trek to Damascus. Notice what Luke recorded for us, Acts 9, beginning with verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, 
that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Saul and the Jewish leaders knew the prophecies concerning the Messiah, but they didn't like what they were seeing. They didn't like those prophecies being fulfilled, and they wanted another Messiah. They wanted another prophet like Moses. Now they knew the documented miraculous feats that Jesus had performed. They understood well what that indicated. But they were determined to be willful. They wanted a different Messiah. He didn't fit in to what they viewed as God's kingdom. They wanted this physical Israel to rise up, throw off the yoke of bondage. They wanted Rome to get what they had coming to them and they wanted to be lifted up and praised by men because that's what they loved. They wanted to alter the plan. But Saul, he was willful, but do you know what he did? He convinced himself that he was wholesome. That happens when we see alteration, right? Now there are many in the world who see themselves as faithful and wholesome, yet they're following a different path. They're not following after God. They're sincere in their belief. Saul of Tarsus was sincere in his beliefs. He loved God, but he was following an altered path. And he had altered God's plan. In fact, he was murdering Christians. That was never in God's plan to murder anyone at any time. And I want us to notice, after having obeyed the gospel, he was arrested, he was brought before the Sanhedrin council, and he acknowledged to them that he was sincere in the past. He believed what he was doing. Notice Acts 23 verse 1. He said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And that would include watching Stephen be murdered, consenting to Stephen's death. He never violated his conscience. He always felt like he was doing the right thing. But the right thing in his mind was an altered plan. Many in the world are traveling that path. They sincerely believe what they're doing. I believe there's no doubt in my mind they love God. They want to be faithful. They want to get to heaven. But they've been misinformed. They haven't searched out the Scripture. They haven't been able to identify the altered plan. I read one time where a a bank had sent its employees to uh, Washington, D.C., and, and they sent them to watch money being made and, and to uh, help them identify counterfeit bills. And so they went, and, and I don't know how long they were there, I don't recall, but it was an extended period of time, and they came back and they were questioning them. And do you know not one time were they shown a counterfeit bill? Not one time was a counterfeit bill presented to them. They weren't concerned with counterfeit bills. They were concerned with the real thing. If you can identify the real thing, you'll see the counterfeit. And that's what we need to understand. If we will search out God's plan, we'll identify the altered one. If Saul had done that, he would have identified that. Again, I believe that the masses who who follow one organization or another are very sincere. But those leaders, they want the followers to remain uninformed. We see that alteration in the history of this world. 
during what we know as the Dark Ages, during that period of time, the prominent denomination would chain the Bible to the pulpits of their buildings. They didn't want the common person to have it in their hands. In fact, they didn't even have it printed in the common language. They called it the barbarian language. Oh, we can't print the Bible in the common language. The priest will tell you what you need to know. Well, what happens if the priest alters the message? And we don't have the real thing to compare. See, that causes a problem. We see that at times we might walk on the road of distraction. We might see the road of alteration. But do you know the real reason behind it? Have you ever thought about the real reason why certain groups want to keep the Bible out of the hands of people? When God gives you His Word, He doesn't want you to be distracted. He doesn't want you to alter anything. When we have God's Word, that will lead us to the road of investigation, won't it? That's our third point tonight. The person who searches out that road is the one who has a willing heart, an open mind, and one who wants to find the truth. We see an example of one walking that road when we read in Acts chapter 9. We read, or excuse me, Acts chapter 8. We read about a man known as the Ethiopian eunuch, and he is on the road to Gaza. Notice what Luke recorded. Acts chapter 8, beginning with verse 26. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying this, Arise and go toward the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, and eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, and read Isaiah the prophet. Now, was this man interested in, in understanding what God wanted for him? Of course he was. He was reading from God's book. He had the scroll of Isaiah. Of Isaiah. He was interested. He had a willing and an open heart. Now remember, he had just come back from Jerusalem. He had gone up there to worship at the Passover to honor that feast. And he was a practicing Jew. But he was willing to listen to Philip. Philip wasn't a Jew. Oh, he was of Jewish descent. But he was a Christian. And so you have a man who is, has great authority. He is the treasurer of a whole nation. He's in charge of all the money. The queen trusted him. He was a Jew. He believed in what he was doing. He'd come all the way from Africa to Jerusalem. But he would listen because he did want to know. He, did, he was willing. And it says that Philip began at that same scripture, verse 35, and taught him Jesus. Do you know the difference between the eunuch and Paul prior to his conversion? The eunuch was willing. He would listen to what Philip had to say. You know, Saul of Tarsus heard one of the greatest sermons that we have recorded for us in the Scripture. He heard Stephen speak that sermon. And at the conclusion of that sermon, it simply fell on deaf ears. He consented to the death of that great man, and they murdered Stephen. When we read about the Bereans, they had the things that were necessary. They had a willing heart. They would listen. But they're not just going to, or they were not just going to take anyone's word for it. Paul was their preacher, yet when they heard him preach, 
They searched the Scripture daily, Acts 17, verse 11, whether those things were so. It's too important, isn't it? You have to have a willing heart. But after we have a willing heart, we're willing to listen. And we do those things that God has asked us to do. We must never waver. We have to hang in there, right? We have to stay where we need to be. Salvation begins with a willing heart, but it, what carries us to heaven is never wavering. Not giving up, right? You know, sometimes we think we've got it pretty bad in this life, don't we? But we really do not understand persecution in any, in, in, really in any sense of the word. Now, those during the first century who lived under the reign of Domitian, they understood exactly what persecution was, and that was a part of their life. Their lives almost, I can imagine, as it were, revolved around, are we going to lose our lives today? Is the government going to come in and drag us into the street and make us say that Caesar is God, and if we don't, kill us? Is the government going to come in and and take my children out and then use my children against me to say that I believe Caesar is God or else they'll kill my children. Now that's real persecution, brethren. They understood that. And though that was a real part of life, Jesus still demanded, Be thou faithful even unto death. Don't worry about those who are going to throw you in prison. You're going to be thrown in prison. Don't worry about those who can kill you. Some of you will die. You know, earlier in his ministry he said, Be concerned with the one who not only can destroy the body, but can destroy the soul in hell. We must never allow another to take away our hope. And that's what they learned in the first century. Have you ever heard of a man by the name of Monty Roberts? Monty Roberts was a a kid whose father was a horse trainer. And he moved around from place to place to place to place, from ranch to ranch, and he trained horses. And so this boy's dream was to grow up and have a huge horse farm, to have a huge home. And so in school one day, when he was a senior, the teacher gave them an assignment to write an essay on what they wanted when they were grown, when they left home, and he didn't hesitate. In fact, he wrote a seven-page essay on exactly what he wanted. He talked about the horse ranch. He, he drew maps of buildings and barns. He even had the plans for his house in that essay. And so he turned that in. Two days later, he received his paperback, and, and right on the front page in big red bold letter was an F. So he went to the teacher and he said, I don't understand. Why did I get an F in the... The teacher told him this. She said, Monty, this dream is so unrealistic for a boy like you. You don't have any money. You have no resources. You come from an itinerant family. You don't even have a home, really. There's no possibility that you will ever reach your great goals. So the teacher told Monty, said, I'm going to give you a second chance. You go back and you rewrite this paper and you turn it in. And you come back with a more realistic attitude for the outcome. Well, he was heartbroken. So he went home to his father and he said, what should I do? Father looked at the boy and he said, this is a very important decision. 
This is a decision you need to think about and only you can make. So after several days, the boy went back to school and he had the paper in his hand and in fact, it was the same paper. He gave that same paper to the teacher and there were no changes and he looked at the teacher he said, I'll tell you what, you keep the F, I'll keep my dreams. And you know what happened to Monty Roberts? He went on to own a 4,000 square foot house in the middle of a 200 acre horse ranch and he still has that school paper in a, in a frame above his fireplace. Don't let anyone steal our hope. Whether it's through distraction, alteration, we need to investigate. We need to make sure that, that we have our hope and we understand our hope is based in something that is real. And that's God. Like Monty, we have to be determined to reach our goal. Our goal, of course, is heaven. A little different from Monty's. We're going to walk on a road in this life and we have to be determined. Determination will help me reach my destination. I have to be determined. I'm going to walk on a road. I have to find out what that road's going to be. I need to be like the Ethiopian eunuch, right? I need to be like Paul after, after he was taught by Ananias. He investigated. He understood. And when we come to the realization that maybe I'm on the wrong road, do you know what that doesn't mean? That doesn't mean I don't love my family. That doesn't mean that I'm turning my back on my friends. That doesn't mean that just because I'm not going to continue in generation after generation of tradition that I am going to investigate myself on what God wants doesn't mean that I've lost my love for the people in my life. What it simply means is I want to please God more than I want to please anyone else. And that is where investigation will lead us if we have a willing and an honest heart, if we can avoid distraction, if we can avoid alteration, we can have what God wants us to have. But determination to not allow Satan to win must be a part of who we are. We understand that how we get to heaven. We understand the plan of salvation. I think everyone here are Christians. But we need to be able to relay that to other people. We need to be able to instantly be able to tell someone how to be a Christian, even if I don't have a Bible in my hand. Now, most of us have Bibles on our electronic devices now, and we can look that up, but I need to have it in my heart, right? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee, Psalm 119.11. I need to hide it in my heart. I need to relay that. Faith and repentance. I need to be able to give book, chapter, and verse, not because I say it, but because God said it. Confession that Jesus is the Son of God, immersion in water, coming up out of that water, a new creature walking in a new life. What more could we want? Going on our way rejoicing, just like the eunuch. Sometimes we slip up a little bit and we make mistakes in our lives, and sometimes we make huge mistakes. But we can come back. We talked about David overcoming this morning, right? He overcame. That's why we study David. We want to watch Him overcome. We want to rejoice with Him because He overcame. We want to do that with each other. If you failed God in some way, come back to Him tonight through repentance, confession of sin, and a determination to be who God needs us to be. If you need to answer this invitation, do that as we stand and as we sing.